The Restless Heart Podcast, Episode 13. By Faith Alone. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Hello, and welcome to the Restless Heart Podcast. My name is David. And I'm Nessa. It's been a while. Yeah, too long. Yeah, I had to do the last episode by myself. It was very strange. Didn't like talking to the air. But what have you been up to since we last recorded together? Um, my roommate had her birthday, and we celebrated at Shout House in downtown, which was so much fun. If you haven't gone, you need to go. Why is it cool? Um, well, there's these two grand pianos side by side, uh, and the pianists are looking at each other and they get requests from the audience for songs. But when you put the requests in, there's money in there. I think the most <laughs> that they said it was like $80 yeah. just for a song. Yeah. And then I also did photography for a birthday party and the family was Chaldean. So I learned a couple cultural things there, which is really exciting. And then, um, I did photography for my cousin's, um, baby shower in Mexico so different tradition there how they did it it was really fancy I was I felt really out of place but it was a lot of fun though it was really it was really beautiful see in England we don't even really do baby showers it's not a thing like it is here what what do you guys do nothing turn up the wireless and drink tea I don't know (laughs) what did you do my C.S. Lewis reading group we have now finished mere Christianity and we've started the four loves just in time for Valentine's Day that is not an accident. Ah, I might listen to this. <laughs> well, you actually have to come. We meet second Saturdays in Milano's coffee shop. That's right. In Mission Valley. Yeah. Uh, what else? Uh, oh, I actually just got an invitation to be an early reader for book three of The Sword and the Serpent by Taylor Marshall. Have you read any of those books? No. So it's all set in the early church, like the late second, early third century. And it follows St. George and St. Catherine, and it's really cool. So they, they love your voice. Oh, I'm just reading it. I did, the, the deal is you read it early and you write a review on Amazon, so when they launch, it's got lots of five stars. Oh, I see. I thought you were like actually reading it, like creating an audiobook or something <laughs> for it. That would be cool, but no. And I also had a meeting of my men's huddle. So it's a group of us guys. We meet a couple of times a month and talk about life and everything. And speaking of manly things, um, a friend and I, we had our friend anniversary, five years. Aww. It was, it was quite adorable. Did you take pictures? We didn't take pictures, but we do give gifts. And this was year five, which in anniversary terms is the wood anniversary. So he bought me a pipe. So I'm going to learn how to smoke a pipe. <laughs> and I got him some bourbon uh, that had been double barreled. So it had been through twice as much wood. That sounds good. Pretty amazing. So, on to today's topic. As I'm sure many of you have known, that we've recently marked the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. About 500 years ago, Martin Luther is said to have nailed his 95 theses, his 95 points of debate, to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg in Germany. And this sparked what has become known as the Protestant Reformation. With that in mind, we're going to devote the next two episodes to looking at two of the central issues of the Reformation. In Latin, they're known as sola fide and sola scriptura. 
Sola fide means by faith alone. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. So in today's episode, we're going to look at the first of these, sola fide, the idea that we're saved by faith alone. And as I just mentioned, Martin Luther was the man at the center of this reformation. He was an Augustinian monk, and he was a university lecturer. And so I just wanted to kick things off by looking at what he said about sola fide, because he believed that this was essential. In his lectures on Galatians, he says, if the doctrine of justification is lost, the whole of Christian doctrine is lost. He saw it as that essential. And in preparation for this show, I went to the website Got Questions, an apologetic site, very strong Protestant bent, rather anti-Catholic, but this is what they have to say about sola fide. So they're like Catholic answers, but for the Protestant. Yeah. Here's what they say about sola fide. Sola fide, or faith alone, is a key point of difference between not only Protestants and Catholics, but between biblical Christianity and almost all religions and teachings. The teaching that we are declared righteous by God, justified, on the basis of our faith alone and not by works, is a key doctrine of the Bible and in line which divides most cults from biblical Christianity. So, they think we're a cult. If we abandon the doctrine of justification by faith, we abandon the only way of salvation. The Bible teaches that those who trust Jesus for justification by faith alone are imputed with his righteousness, while those who try and establish their own righteousness or mix faith with works will receive the punishment due to all who fall short of God's perfect standard. So this is pretty serious stuff. And if you get this wrong, you get everything wrong. So where did Luther get this idea from? A fortune cookie. Not quite. (laughs) The more obvious answer would be to say the Bible. The quotation that I just read from Got Questions implies, well, it actually flat out says that the Bible teaches that we're saved by faith alone. So does it? No. Nowhere in the Bible will you ever see a sentence that says that we're saved by faith alone. That is, unless you're looking in the German translation of the New Testament written by Martin Luther. In the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 3, verse 28, this was a verse which was crucial to Luther's understanding that we're saved by faith alone. St. Paul says, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So what word is missing from that sentence? Alone. Yeah, alone. St. Paul says that we're justified by faith, but he doesn't say that we're justified by faith alone. However, Luther felt so strongly about sola fide, and he was so convinced that this is what Paul meant to say, that when he translated this Greek text into German, he changed it to this. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law. He added the word alone there, in German, allein. Now, as you can imagine, he received quite a lot of criticism for adding this. His response was incredible. This is what he said. If you're papist, that means Catholic. So if you're a Catholic, you're a papist. If your papist wishes to make a great fuss about the word sola, alone, say this to him. Dr. Martin Luther will have it so. And he says that a papist and a donkey are the same thing. Oh. <laughs> what? It's not very he ecumenical. Not very ecumenical. If you actually read Luther's writings, he was amazing at insults. I mean, really, really good. You actually can... I'll put a link in the show notes to a Luther insult generator. It's a website you can go to and it'll automatically generate an insult based on his works. 
he retranslated the New Testament into German. He adds this word alone. And what's kind of ironic about this is that Luther was doing exactly what he accused the Catholic Church of doing, for placing the traditions of men above the word of God. He was so convinced of his theological opinions that he put a word into scripture that's not in scripture. I wonder if he knew but didn't want to change it because of all this hubbub. Because if he changed it, would it would you be at peace? If he changed it as Like in, if he removed the word alone. Oh, if he backed down. Yeah. I, I think it's uncontroversial to say he was utterly convinced that this is what the Bible taught. Hmm. He was completely genuine in his belief. But he's a monk, right? So Or at he, least he was. He was a monk. So he I mean, there should be at least owe it to himself for why he wanted to become a monk in the first place, which was, it included works. The actual story behind it is he was traveling and he got caught in a thunderstorm and there was lightning flashing around. He was convinced he was going to die. So he prayed to the saints to save him. And he promised that if they, if they interceded for him and he made it out alive, he would become a priest, he'd become a monk. And that's what he did. That was how he ended up there. Hmm. Okay. If the Bible doesn't actually say that we're saved by faith alone, where did Luther get this idea other than from his own translation? It was from passages like that one in Romans, as well as many others like Galatians 2.16, Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, where the New Testament is very clear that we are justified, we're made right with God by faith. Whenever anyone quotes the Bible at you, Catholics, you can say, Amen, I believe. If it's an accurate translation, you can agree with it. And in those passages, it does say we are justified by faith. It just doesn't have that pesky word alone <laughs> added to it. And this is where we come into conflict with Luther. He says not only are we saved by faith, but it's faith alone. Mm, forever alone. <laughs> Now, someone might say, hang on a minute, doesn't St. Paul say again and again that we're not saved by works? Doesn't that mean that we're therefore saved by faith? Now you're confusing me. Well, it's true that he does say again and again that works don't save us. But what kind of works? Let's go back to that passage that we just read from Romans. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. He says that we're saved apart from the works of the law. That's a really important qualification. He's talking about the prescriptions of the Mosaic law. And this is what St. Paul spends a lot of time in his letters talking about. He's comparing the covenant with Moses on Sinai, the Mosaic law, with the covenant with Jesus. Mm. So when this subject comes up when I'm talking to a non-Catholic, I'll briefly explain that. I'll emphasize that St. Paul is comparing works of the law against faith. And he talks about faith, but at no point does he talk about faith alone. Now, earlier, when I said that the Bible doesn't talk about faith alone, that's not actually entirely true. There is one verse of the New Testament that has the phrase faith alone. It's in the epistle of James. What? Unfortunately, it's got the word not stuck in front of it. In James 2.24, it says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Hmm. So that's pretty conclusive, right? Mm -hmm. 
If that's the case, then how could Luther believe that we're saved by faith alone? Didn't he know about this verse? Well, he did. He just really didn't like the epistle of James. Actually, when he produced his translation, he moved James out of the main portion of the Bible and into an appendix. Oh, that's so mean. Here's what he said. We should throw the epistle of James out of this school, for it doesn't amount to much. It contains not a syllable about Christ. Not once does it mention Christ except at the beginning. I maintain that some Jew wrote it who had probably heard about Christian people, but never encountered any. Luther referred to the epistle of James as an epistle of straw. That's horrible. Like, okay, so he never did this with a team. He did this on his own. I'm sure he was influenced by other people, but he was certainly a driving force. But when he translated the Bible, he was doing it alone. It was basically him, yeah. Um, And he didn't manage to keep James in the appendix. His followers really pressured him to move it back into the main body of the New Testament. So when the Catholic Bible was formed, it was with a team of people, correct? There were councils of the early church. I'm thinking of um, the Synod of Rome, the councils of Carthage and Hippo. These were gatherings of bishops. Okay, that's what I'm noticing between the Catholic Church and Protestants. Protestants, the way their, tor- their churches were formed was by typically one person, right? There was, there was often a very charismatic leader who drove things, yes. I mean, so like the Mormon... Yeah, I, I wouldn't actually put Mormons into the same classes as Protestants, but sure. Okay. So I've been noticing that most of these churches that are Protestant, um, it's mainly just one guy just had this bright idea and boom, a church is formed. Yeah, it's usually a little bit more gradual than that. And to Luther's credit, he originally thought that he was reforming the church and not breaking off and founding his own. But ultimately, that's what progressively happened. So what if Catholics today have, you know, beef with the Catholic Church, like Luther did? Mm -hmm. What do Catholics go about? I'm just recommending to Catholics who, before you go Protestant, (laughs) hold on, let's let's talk it out, you know? I think it depends on what someone has a beef with. Say if it's with Catholic teaching, my first suggestion would be make sure that you are understanding it correctly. I have lost track of the number of times people have told me what the Catholic Church believes. And they're not even close to what Catholics believe. Because they're talking to a friend who's poorly catechized or... Or maybe themselves. I mean, I grew up in a generation that was appallingly catechized. But I've had people tell me that papal infallibility means that Catholics think that the Pope is perfect. (laughs) Nope. I've had people tell me that we think Mary is a goddess. Nope. Oh, that'd be so funny. The list is kind of long. So I think if you have an issue with Catholic teaching, make sure that you are actually understanding it and then ask the why question. Why does the Catholic Church teach this? Because we don't just make stuff up for fun. There is a basis. There will be a reason why based in scripture and in sacred tradition. So make sure you're understanding the actual doctrine correctly and also then make sure that you know the why When I started wandering away from the Catholic Church, it was because some things in Catholicism seemed stupid to me. But I never went and asked the question why, or at least when I did, I didn't go to someone who could give me an answer. If, however, it's not so much the teaching of the church, but the practice of the church, then I think we need to look to another reformer. I'm not talking about Luther, I'm not talking about Calvin. 
I'm talking about people like St. Francis of Assisi, St. Dominic. These were people who also lived at times when the church was not in good shape, when there was a lot of corruption, a lot of laxity. People didn't know their faith. They weren't fervent about their faith. That sounds like today. We need new St. Francis's and we need new St. Dominic's. You hear that, guys? But I, I focus particularly on St. Francis because, like I said, he lived at a time when the church was in really bad shape. But by the end of his life, he had transformed Italy and the church at large. The church actually asked him to found a third order of Franciscans because they were afraid that Italy was going to be depopulated because everybody is going off and becoming a monk or a nun. <laughs> he was that successful. But what's incredible is when you read about what was important to Francis. And it was obedience. Obedience and personal holiness. He served people and he put himself under the authority of people who, quite honestly, weren't worthy of him. But he believed in the Catholic Church so much that he submitted to their authority anyway. And more importantly, before anything else, he sought personal holiness. He reformed himself. And in so doing, reformed the church because he inspired people. He lived the gospel life. He lived the evangelical councils. So if anyone's thinking about forming a new church, please do those things first. That'd be great. Now, so we've talked a little bit about what St. Paul teaches. He teaches that we are saved by faith, but not faith alone. When he's complaining about works, he's talking about the works of the Mosaic law. He's not talking about the new covenant with Jesus. And we've seen that in the epistle of James, it explicitly says that we are not saved by faith alone. And when I talk to people who hold to sola fide, I try and spend most of my time in the epistle of James because it's, it's the real text they have to deal with. Because James explicitly says, that doctrine you believe, no. So for the rest of the episode, I just want to walk through the strategy that I employ when talking about this. Because... In my experience, people will spend a lot of time talking about James and trying to make it say something other than what it seems. So I like just to lead with a few basic yes-no questions and see where it goes from there. So I'm going to ask you these questions. Okay. Can a dead faith save you? What? No. Can a barren faith save you? Who? No. Can an incomplete faith save you? <laughs> no. All correct. So... I then ask another three questions just to really drive home the point. So you're saying that we need a faith that's alive. Yes. And we need a faith that is fruitful. Of course. And we need a faith that's complete. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then that begs three more questions. How is faith given life? How is a barren faith made fruitful? And what's the difference between a complete faith and an incomplete faith? And then we go to the epistle of James, because he gives us the answers to each of these. And the answer is works. So we want a living faith. This is what he says in James 2.17. In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. That's right. I remember that one. So that was living faith. Now a fruitful faith. In James 2.20, he says, do you want to be shown, you foolish fellow, that faith apart from works is barren? So we need works to make it fruitful. So we've talked about living faith, a fruitful faith, and lastly, a complete faith. In James 2.22, he says, Abraham's faith was made complete by what he did. So we have a living faith, a fruitful faith, and a complete faith. At no point 
No point does James ever complain about his readers' faith. Why not? Because that's not his focus. He's concerned about the works. He's not saying you need a different kind of faith. He speaks about something that is lacking in their faith. What he complains about is their absence of works. And if you add these works, he says, you will have saving faith. If you try and separate the two, faith and works, it's like separating a spirit from a body. What happens when you separate a spirit from a body? It's dead. It's dead. It's a corpse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's still a body. Mm-hmm. Yes. In the same way, faith can still be faith. But if you take away the spirit, if you take away works, it's a dead body. You need both. And one of my heroes, C.S. Lewis, if you're not listening to my other podcast, The Eagle and Child, please subscribe. <laughs> he had this to say in Mere Christianity. Christians have often disputed as to whether what leads the Christian home is good actions or faith in Christ. It does seem to me like asking which blade of a pair of scissors is most necessary. How would you cut a piece of paper if you only had one blade on a pair of scissors? Yeah, that, what? It wouldn't work. You need both. One last point that I really want to make as we start to draw to a close. Because Catholics are often accused of works-based salvation. That was what that website got questions said. It thinks that we believe that we can earn our salvation by our works. Why? Why did they get that idea from? Because we reject salvation by faith alone. Oh. And so they say, oh, you're saying, oh, so you're adding something to faith. Now, the Catholic Church actually condemned this idea that we can earn our salvation. They did it all the way back in the fifth century. It was called the heresy of Pelagianism. The Catholic Church absolutely teaches that we're saved by grace, that it's a gift from God. It's not something that we can earn, but it is a gift that we cherish and guard. I'm going to go back to my master, C.S. Lewis, once again, because he describes this beautifully in Mere Christianity, where he compares the natural life we receive from our parents to the supernatural life we receive from Christ. Here's what he says. Your natural life is derived from your parents. That does not mean that it will stay there if you do nothing about it. You can lose it by neglect, or you can drive it away by committing suicide. You have to feed it and look after it. So you see the idea that he's saying, you get this life from your parents, but you still have to guard and protect it. You have to respond to it. But always remember that you are not making it. You are only keeping up a life you got from someone else. So I might look after myself and keep my body in its tremendous trim that you can clearly see. (laughs) But this isn't a life that I've made for myself. It's something that I've received from my parents as a gift. In the same way, says Lewis, a Christian can lose the Christ life that has been put into him. He can lose the divine life, the grace that God has poured into his heart. And he can make efforts to keep it so we can defend this life that God has given us. But even the best Christian that ever lived is not acting on his own steam. He's only nourishing and protecting a life that he could never have acquired by his own efforts. So even the greatest saint that has ever lived, they are still guarding and protecting this divine life that they received from God as grace, as a gift. Probably the most succinct explanation of Catholic teaching concerning salvation comes from St. Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Here's what he says. Galatians 5, 6. The only thing that counts is faith. 
expressing itself through love. Read that again. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. And this was unpacked beautifully by my favorite Pope, Pope Benedict XVI. He had a Wednesday audience in 2008 where he said this. Being just simply means being with Christ and in Christ. So he's talking about justification, being just. It means being with Christ and in Christ. And this suffices. Further observances are no longer necessary. For this reason, Luther's phrase, faith alone, is true. If it is not opposed to faith in charity, in love. Quick sidebar. Other people, other Catholics, faithful Catholics, had used the term faith alone before. And they meant it in an orthodox way. Talking about the primacy of faith. And Pope Benedict here is saying that we can talk about being saved by faith alone as long as we don't mean faith divorced from charity, faith divorced from love. He goes on and says, faith is looking at Christ, entrusting oneself to Christ, being united to Christ, conformed to Christ, to his life. And the form, the life of Christ, is love. Hence, to believe is to conform to Christ and to enter into his love. So it is that in the letter to the Galatians, in which he primarily developed his teaching on justification, St. Paul speaks of faith that works through love. And that was the passage that we just read from Galatians 5.6. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Someone should have told Luther that. Some people did try and tell him. But Luther was convinced that no, was saved by faith alone. And that started a chain of reasoning in his theology. And particularly when he then decided that he was only going to hold to things that were in the scriptures. This is the doctrine of sola scriptura, which we're going to look at next week. Pandora's box had been opened and the Protestant Reformation really started to get up speed. Sounds good. Let's do it. Yeah, we'll do that next week. Speaking of next week, what do you have coming up? Thanksgiving potluck at Our Lady of Mark Carmel. Mm-hmm. We're doing photography for them. So if you can't make it, you'll see it on Facebook. Excellent. <laughs> what about you? Yeah, I've also got Thanksgiving. Gonna mooch off some friends, get some free turkey. The other thing on the horizon is I'm going to be in San Francisco at the start of Advent. I'm going to be giving the talk that I gave here, Is There Life Before Marriage? I'm going to be giving that in San Francisco. So I get to visit the Bay Area, which I'm very excited about. Wait, with Goretti? Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. Oh, Marciano, I said hi. Yeah, and uh, Lucia says, I'm going to see her, and she said to say oh, hi to you as well. Oh, yeah. And, oh, Ivana. Do I know Ivana? She's an old roommate, and Melissa. Oh, okay. Sorry. I can. I, can, I have a list Excellent. of people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you thought it was just Santa that had a list. No, Nessa's got one as well. So, please like, share, and subscribe. We're on iTunes, Google Play, and we're also now on Podbean, if what? you still want to subscribe there. Podbean? Like B-E-A-N? Podbean. Mm-hmm. Huh. And you can always contact us on the website, restlesspilgrim.net. Tweet us at David and Nessa. And that's it. You made us for yourself, O oh Lord. And our hearts will wander restless until we rest in you. All you holy angels and saints. Pray for us. Amen. Amen.